It is good to see y'all this morning. My name is Scott Gilliland. I'm one of the associate pastors here in Thrive, and um, along associate pastors here at Lovers Lane, and along with Reagan, uh, my wife, who's also an associate pastor, we get to co-pastor this service called Thrive, and we're glad that you're here. A special word of greeting to those who are with us for the very first time. We hope that if nothing else this morning, if you hate my sermon and you just get nothing out of worship, uh, we hope that you encounter and can sense that our mission statement here is loving all people through Jesus Christ. We hope that is true in word and in action. And so. Um, we're continuing in a sermon series this morning. First, I should acknowledge my attire this morning. Reagan and I spoke, and we just thought it's time to classy up the joint a little bit here in Thrive. Um, so full suits are required. No, um, I am preaching in big boy church this morning, if you couldn't tell. And um, I really can't wait to be back in jeans and flannel next week. So, um, But I am playing the part. All right, so... <laughs> We are continuing in a sermon series that we've called From Empty to Overflowing. We've been looking at scriptures that um, are in the lectionary, which is this selections of, of scripture readings that denominations throughout the world use uh, that coincide with each Sunday. And during the season of Lent, which is a season of preparation for Easter, uh, the, the readings all kind of seem to have this theme that we, that we noticed of emptiness and empty places and people emptying themselves. And there's this really cool theme in Judeo-Christian faith that um, it's in these empty places, in these emptying moments that God's hope and God's redemption and God's work are really on display. And so we're looking at those stories and those texts the, these next few weeks as we approach Easter. And um, today we're looking at a, at a verse from, or a set of scriptures from Psalm, from the book of Psalms. And if you've never uh, found yourself in the book of Psalms before, it's in the Old Testament. It's the book that if you open your Bible like in the middle, you, you usually hit it, right? And, uh, and the Psalms are essentially a songbook. It's a collection of songs, of poems uh, that were used uh, by the Jewish people in ancient times and continue to be used by uh, Jews and Christians today. A lot of our hymns, a lot of our music, if you read the Psalms, you'll notice a lot of our lyrics still come from the Psalms today. So these are songs we've been singing for thousands of years. And today we're going to be reading Psalm 63, which is a really, it's one of the shorter Psalms. It's a beautiful Psalm. Um, but it's also kind of complicated. Uh, every psalm is, is written from the perspective of somebody, and this one is a psalm of David, which means that um, even though we don't think King David of, of Old Testament fame and glory, King David didn't sit down and write this song line for line. Um, the, the songwriter wrote it as though King David was singing this song, right? And, and, and more than that, it, it comes to us from a very specific point in David's story, and this was before King David was King David, when he was just David. Uh, and after it had become known that he was supposed to be king, going to become king, he had conquered, uh, defeated Goliath in battle, and, and, and King Saul was scared. Because King Saul, who was the king at the time, like any king, doesn't really want to give up his power or his throne or his glory. And so his response is, well, I'll just kill David. That'll solve that problem, right? And so David ends up in the wilderness, which is a really nice way to say the punishing, brutal desert of the Judean landscape. He ends up in this wilderness place, in this desert place, and it's there on the run for his life in the desert on the point of death that he sings the song. That's where the psalm comes to us from. That's, that's where the songwriter was bringing us to that place to hear this, this word this morning. So... I want us this morning to be thinking of the following question, because this psalm could lead us in a number of directions, but I want us to ask this question this morning. When we are in the empty wilderness, 
when we're in those places in life that feel like an empty wilderness, a desert, why is worship important? Because you might already be thinking to yourself, Scott, if I was dying in the desert, I probably wouldn't be singing, right? So what does this psalm have to teach us about when we're in the empty wilderness, why is worship important? Before we read our scripture this morning, we believe that scripture is from God and it's alive. And so we invite God's Holy Spirit to be a part of this time and to make it come alive for us. So let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks, gift of worship. We give you thanks for songwriters and poets, for worship leaders and singers and musicians and, and people who teach our hearts to sing. And God, as the great songwriter, would you tune our hearts to sing of your grace? God, would you make these words come alive for us this morning? Would you allow Psalm 63 to jump off the pages of our Bibles and off of the screens and into our hearts that they might change the way that we live? All of this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Psalm 63 says this, and you'll see it on your screens as well. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast. Or more accurately, with like fatty foods. Who loves the fatty, barky brisket at Lockhart's, right? My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And then he continues... But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall pray for jackals. Whoa, David. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Psalm 63. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. Question for you. Have you ever been or felt thirsty? And I don't mean like I am right now because I got something in my throat. I'm talking about really, really thirsty. I mean really thirsty. I mean mouth so dry you can barely talk, spots developing in your eyes, do anything for a sip of water, thirsty. Anyone ever been there before? Last time I remember being that thirsty, I was in high school. And if you know anything about Texas in high schools, uh, you know that we take one thing very seriously here in Texas. And every summer, about a month before school starts, students hit the field and begin practicing in a hundred and plus degree heat. I am, of course, referring to two-a-days for marching band. 
You thought I was talking about football, didn't you? <laughs> no. No. Have you seen the men disguising themselves as boys who play football in high school in Texas? I am not a moron. No, no, no. I found my way to the band hall very quickly in junior high. And I'll have you know that drumline is very tiring too, okay? Not a word out of you, Reagan. When you're a sophomore in high school and you're 150 pounds if you just ate a big meal and you're carrying the biggest bass drum the high school owns and, you're, and it's all on your lower back and it's 120,000 degrees outside and the drum is jet black, you get thirsty. You get really thirsty. And I remember when we would take water breaks, right? And, and, and all of us drink water every day, right? I hope you do. Otherwise, like, go see a doctor. Something's wrong. Um, we all drink water every single day. And water, by nature, is kind of tasteless, yeah? It's like kind of water's thing. Like, I'm water. I don't taste like anything, right? And, and you drink water, and it's just, it's just water. And, but when you're really tired, and I mean really, really thirsty, when you're like wimpy high school student carrying a bass drum in the middle of a Texas summer, thirsty, and you get to that water break, you can actually kind of taste the water, right? Have you ever been that thirsty where you taste the water? And then right before you drink the water, when, when you're at that peak level of thirst, and like your mind is only on one thing, like there is nothing in God's green earth that you want more than a sip of water. Good Lord, just give me a taste of that delicious, refreshing, life-giving water. That is what the psalmist says our love of God should be like. You ever been really thirsty? Oh God, the psalmist says, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So my story about being thirsty and drumline is silly and funny. But David's situation is no laughing matter. David is thirsting to the point of death. He's in the desert, in the heat, in the dryness, in the drought. Can you feel the heat? Can you feel the sand? He's struggling to survive in a place where survival is not guaranteed. Have you ever been in a place like David where thirsting was no laughing matter? When unemployment went on longer than you thought it would, where that relationship fell apart and there was no hope for repair, where there was someone you loved deeply who was hurting and you just couldn't make it better. Have you ever been thirsting and it's no laughing matter? I think of a moment for Reagan and me in those couple of years that we walked through infertility before uh, we got Andy Jane. And if you or someone you love has ever walked through infertility, you know that that can feel like a desert. It certainly did for us. It's, it's endless. It's punishing. It's a struggle to survive. A couple years into struggling to have a child, though, Reagan took a test, and it came back positive, and, and we were thrilled, right? We were absolutely thrilled. And like a flood, all of the things that we thought we couldn't talk about or we couldn't even think about, they came rushing back in. Who should we tell, and, and what, when does it do, and what names sound nice, and when do we start working on the nursery? And then a couple days later, I woke up to the sound of my wife sobbing. It's a sound I'll never forget. 
in a pit foreign to my stomach that was going to be there for a long time because I knew something was terribly wrong. We had what we would learn was called a chemical pregnancy. It's where a woman's body thinks that it's pregnant, and so it, it acts like a pregnant body. And if you take a test, it comes back positive because it thinks it's pregnant for a few days, and all the right chemicals are there. But then in a few more days, you realize that the answer is no. And as a couple who'd been receiving no as our answer month after month for a couple of years, I'll tell you, this one hurt more, felt emptier, seemed more hopeless than the other no's that we've been given. I know what it's like to ache for something deep within your soul, deep within your body, because you thirst on a spiritual level. Water is fundamental to human life. We need it to survive. We can't live without it. And that is how I felt about raising a family, and that is how the psalmist says we ought to feel about God. It's like water for us. But I'll be honest with you, church. Can we be honest this morning? If you want to be honest, say amen. Good, I'm glad to hear that. I'll be honest. In, the, in that week following, um, that week following the, the, the last thing that I wanted to do was to go to church and sing songs of praise. Have you ever been there before, if we're being honest? The last thing I wanted to do was go to church and sing songs of praise. Why? Because I was mad. I was hurt. I was enraged by the circumstances of my life, and I did not feel like singing hallelujah in church. I was in the desert, but I was not praising God. I was lost. Have you ever been lost in the desert? Am I the only one? I don't think I am. So the psalmist continues with some words that challenged me this week, but ultimately have become a life-giving stream for me that I think when I'm in the wilderness, the next time I will be in my life, the next time that I feel like I'm lost in the desert, I know I'm going to come back to this psalm because of what the psalmist says here. Hear these words. He says, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. I'll lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. And here's this one line in particular I just... I just needed this week. It says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now, these are words that sat and sat and sat with me this week and would not let me go. Because I remembered all those times that I refused to worship God out of protest for the pain that my life was causing me. It's one of those lines that we read in scripture all the time that we pass right over because we, we feel like we've heard something like that so many times in our Christian faith. But let me read it again and let me rephrase it slightly and I want you to really listen and see if it has the impact on you that it did and does on me. It says, my lips will praise you because your steadfast love is better than life. Church, I don't know if you knew this, but we worship an unconditional God. Amen? 
This is a God whose love is not based on our good behavior. It is never biased against us. It's a love that would literally fight hell for us. It is a love that is willing to die for us. An unconditional God. And I'm listening to the words of the psalmist, and I'm thinking of all of those times that God's love had proven faithful time and time and time again when God had loved me out of the desert of isolation in my youth. When God had loved me out of the desert of directionlessness in college. Anyone else been there before? When God had loved me out of the desert of meaninglessness in my young adulthood. Time and time and time again when I found myself in the desert, when I found myself thirsting and dying and wondering when and where God was going to show up, like a flood God's love showed up in my life, unconditionally overflowing into the life of a broken and messy and foolish and stubborn and arrogant and selfish young man. Time and time again, God's unconditional love arrived, not when I wanted it or when I thought that I needed it, but when I actually needed it the most. Time and time again, this unconditional God and God's unconditional love had been proven greater and stronger and better than anything in my life. As the psalmist says, God's steadfast, God's unconditional love is better than life. And in return for this unconditional love, I offered God conditional worship. In return for unconditional love, I offered God conditional worship. A worship conditional on my condition. A worship conditional on my circumstances. A worship conditional on my understandings. A worship conditional on my present. This week I'm sitting in my office. I'm preparing for this sermon and I am just absolutely crushed by the Holy Spirit. Because I'm realizing something. I'm realizing that so many times in my life, I've been guilty of offering conditional worship to an unconditional God. Are you like me? Have you ever been guilty of offering conditional worship to an unconditional God? And I'm, I'm, I'm listening to David sing, and, and David can sing with these parched lips. Do you see his parched lips? I mean, really, get in, do you hear them cracking when he opens his mouth? He's got sand-filled lungs. His song is wheezing. But he sings, not because everything is going right, but because he believes that with God, ultimately, everything will be made right. He's looking at his life through the eyes of God. He's seeing the bigger picture. He's praising God, not for the desert that he's in, but for the kingdom of God that God is building. He's praising God, not for the life that he might lose, but for the eternal life that he's already gained. He's praising God, not for the water that may or may not touch his lips, but for the stream of mercy that has long nourished his soul. Those are things that no one, and not even mighty King Saul can ever take away from him. Even in the wilderness, these are things that are worthy of worship. So speaking of King, <coughs> man, sorry about my voice today. Mm. I'm thirsty. <coughs> 
Speaking of King Saul, we get to that weird little ending, right? It's kind of graphic and violent uh, at the end of this psalm. And, and by the way, if you're reading psalms, a lot of the psalms do a thing like this where like, it's really nice and lovely and yay Jesus. Also, bad enemies, oh, kill them, yay. Okay, back to yay Jesus, you know, yay God, woo. You know, so just be prepared. Like if you're reading, you're like let's read a psalm with our family, with our kids. Like they might be talking about feed my enemies to the jackals, right? You know, so just, you know, anyways, use your best judgment. And also read it first, you know, that's always a good idea. Um, <laughs> So here's the, here's the ending again. But those who seek to destroy my life, they shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be prey for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. So those who seek to destroy David's uh, life is referring to King Saul. And these psalms are being written well after David's life, and so they're a way of kind of telling artistically the story of David. If you go back to the book of 1 Samuel, which is sort of the Old Testament chronicling of David's early life, you'll learn that that the, the psalmist is essentially describing artistically what happens to Saul. Saul is given over to the power of the sword, meaning he dies on the battlefield, uh, losing a battle. And uh, his body becomes prey for the jackals in a really gruesome telling of what happens exactly to uh, dead King Saul that is certainly not for nighttime bedtime reading with children, um, but it is very Games of Thronish. So if you want to go back and read the end of First Samuel, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's abused. His body is abused uh, and desecrated by, by his enemies. He is prey for jackals. But rather than getting lost in this sort of weird graphic nature of, of the ending of this psalm, I want instead to turn our attention to, I think, the broader theme that the psalmist is calling us to hear at the end of Psalm 63. I hear the psalmist saying this, when our life becomes an act of worship, we truly begin to live. When our life, not just Sunday mornings, not just our devotion time in the morning, Not just our evening prayers, not just grace over dinner, but when our life itself becomes an act of worship, when we connect ourselves to God the same way we connect ourselves to water, we actually begin to live. Because Saul's great sin wasn't that he was a bad strategic war mind. He was pretty good at battle, actually. It wasn't that. It's not that he failed to have the right skill set to be a good king, He failed because he forgot that ultimately as king, he needed to be connected to God the same way we're connected to water. And it became about his personal glory and his power and his throne. He forgot the reason for life. And David, for all of his faults and flaws, and trust me, he's got a lot of them. One thing he always remembers is that worship of God has to be paramount in this life. Worship of God has to be the most important thing. When we disconnect ourselves from God, it is just like being in the desert and disconnecting yourself from water. Reading Psalm 63 reminds me of another great songwriter, another great song, one that if you spend any time in church, I'm willing to bet that you've heard before. It comes to us from the songwriter Robert Robinson when he said, Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Think of all the times God has been there. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it 
mount of thy redeeming love. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. How much am I in debt to your grace, God? Let that goodness like a fetter. And uh, fun fact, no one knows what fetter means, actually. It's a made-up word. No, it means chain. Um, Let that goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I think sometimes it's important to read the songs that we sing. Psalm 63 reminds us, the psalmist reminds us that we, when we cut ourselves off from God, even in what is righteous anger, we're really cutting ourselves off from the essence of life. And that worship is not just something that we do, it is what we were made for. And so my prayer for us this morning, Thrive, and as we go into our weeks, I I hope that you leave this place knowing that worship doesn't stop the second the music ends and the lights come down and you walk out the doors. This is the starting point. This is the time when we come together and we sing songs and and we hear a good word and, and then we go and then we continue to worship. We continue to make our life about that life-giving stream. Because the honest truth is all of us are thirsty. Whether you realize it or not, all of us are thirsty. And when we connect ourselves to the stream of mercy that is Jesus Christ, when we connect ourselves to the stream of mercy that is the unconditional love of God, and when we offer unconditional worship in response, then, then we can truly live. So this week, I hope that in your life you find worship. Whether you find yourself in the desert or the plain, the mountain or the valley, on the throne or in the battlefield, I hope that you find worship. I hope that you can offer an unconditional worship for an unconditional God. Then through that worship, in that worship, I pray that we can find our life. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for poetry, thank you for song, thank you for artists who know how to put words in a way that we can't articulate but resonate somewhere deep within us. God, we confess, we confess that we have offered you conditional worship. that we've refused to open our lips for a song of praise because our lives and our conditions and our understandings weren't where we needed them or wanted them to be. God, can we remember that you are a God whose love for us is greater and stronger and better than life. That no matter how much brokenness we encounter, no matter how messy we get. No matter how unlovable we may feel, that your unconditional love pierces through. It's an oasis in the desert. God, allow us to sing not because everything's going right, but because we know that through you everything will be made right. We hope in your kingdom. 
We hope in your glory. We hope in your redemption. And that is enough. It's enough for us to sing. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.